Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode of Markets Daily is sponsored by CME Group. It's Friday, December 22nd, 2023, and this is Markets Daily from Coindesk. I'm Noelle Atchison. On today's show, instead of a market roundup, we bring you an interesting chat I had earlier this week with ARCA Chief Investment Officer Jeff Dorman. So you don't miss an episode, be sure to follow the podcast on your platform of choice and turn on notifications. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Now, here's the interview with Jeff. Hi all, I'm here with Jeff Dorman, Chief Investment Officer for ARCA. For those of you not familiar, ARCA has been managing crypto funds since 2018, a lifetime ago in crypto years, which gives Jeff an almost unique perspective on how crypto markets and also crypto investors have changed over the past five years. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to uh, see and hear you again, Noel. Thank you. Likewise. And, you know, for those that don't know, Jeff is one of my favorite people to talk to about crypto markets, not just for the breadth of his experience, but also for his background. He does come from traditional finance. He was one of the few to see the potential of this ecosystem early and has also been instrumental in furthering many narratives from his seat at ARCA. So I've been looking forward to this for ages, Jeff. And I have to specify that we're recording this on December 19th, and in crypto, things can change fast. So I urge listeners to take that into account. You know, Jeff, let's let's dive in. I want to focus most of this chat on what's ahead. It's been a rough couple of years for most. Many of us bear some new scars, but the mood now feels different. What sort of sentiment are you seeing at ARCA these days? Sure. Yeah. And I think... um... It's not really that different from other asset classes in the sense that when things are bad and going the wrong way, you tend to have less phone calls and less interest. And when things are good and going the right way, you tend to have more. Obviously, from an investing standpoint, you'd always like to see the opposite, right? More people coming in at the lows when when sentiment is really bad, but it's human nature. But we're definitely seeing that sentiment shift right now. Most of the press and and media coverage really has focused on two things this year, right? One has just been the continued fallout of 2022, right? Whether that be the bankruptcies or jail time for various actors that, you know, either got in, in legal trouble or at least financial trouble in 2022, or it's been on the meteoric rise of a select few 
stocks and tokens that have done really well, whether that be you know Bitcoin and the associated miners or Coinbase stock or um, you know Solana and and maybe some of the AI tokens. But but lost in the middle has been a whole ecosystem of DeFi and some Web three and some gaming and NFTs that just just work right. They haven't gone down. They haven't changed, and the investors. Are starting to pick up the phone and call again, right? They they are past the point of just the all I hear about is the negative, all I hear about is the fear, and they want to, they want answers. They want to know why, like why is Solana doing so well? You know why are these different narratives and sectors starting to pick up again, right? What what is driving you know Bitcoin success? What's happening on the legal and regulatory front? And and the difference really between right now and you know call it three four years ago when it was similar right the fallout of 2018 and and then the bitcoin rise in 2019 and ultimately the huge rally in 2021 the difference is investors are just smarter now they ask better questions most investors it was just a leap of faith if they were investing in digital assets three four years ago now they they know a lot about what is happening in the ecosystem what they want to invest in what they don't want to invest in i mean it's not uncommon for a family office or a high net worth individual, or even sometimes, you know, a young person at a pension or an endowment to ask me a question that I don't know the answer to. And that never happened three or four years ago. So it just shows you how much education has worked over the last three to four years and, and, and how sophisticated the investor base has gotten. That's actually wild. And especially with the questions, we learn so much about what they're thinking about. Have you noticed also the difference in the career risk? I mean, a few years ago, anyone suggesting to their boss that they take a look at crypto assets was incurring significant careers. But these days, there's more career risk probably in not doing so. Are the investors that you're seeing these days, Jeff, are they the same investors that were invested in crypto but left after the deluge of 2022? Or is it a new cohort? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think you know to answer that, you have to look back at the end of 22 to start with. Some of the worst performers in November and December of 22 were, in my opinion, driven by window dressing and, and sort of the opposite of what you normally think of window dressing in, in that there were certain tokens and stocks that had a lot of crossover appeal that, that, that were going beyond the crypto native folks and, and really starting to end up on TradFi uh, desks and, and, and with traditional investors, whether that be long short equity funds or macro funds or, or even in some cases, you know, larger corporations within finance. And those were just sold because nobody wanted to have that on their books at year end 2022. It was such a dirty word. Crypto and, and digital assets was such a dirty word at the end of 2022 because of you know, really what happened the entire year, but then culminating with FTX and, and Sam Bankman fried that if you owned Coinbase stock or GBTC or Solana, you just sold it without thinking twice. It was, I, I do not want to have this on my books. I don't want it showing up on a year end audit. I don't want an investor asking me about it. And that's the stuff that really was, you know, hit the hardest. And of course, that's the stuff that snapped back the most in 2023 as well. What we're seeing now is a lot of add-ons, people who are already invested in this space, but maybe went a little dark or a little quiet for, you know, 12 to 18 months are starting to reallocate and, and, and put a little bit more money in. It's, so it's definitely the same investors who have sort of stuck with it, but maybe weren't ready to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going all in here because I believe in it, but certainly we're there and, and believed in it once already. But also, it, it was a really unfortunate timing, what happened in the beginning of 2022 and the second quarter of 22, because there were a lot of new, large institutional investors that were on the goal line. I mean, these, these were folks that had been doing due diligence for three, four years. They had got it through investment committee. They started to have people that understood it. 
And they were getting close to allocating. And all of them just said, you know what, I'm taking a step back. We need to reevaluate this in two or three years. What's interesting, though, is they don't they don't stop reading. They don't stop engaging. They're still if you look at the analytics of any of our content, they're still there. They're still paying attention. They're just not anywhere close to allocating right now like they would have been maybe a year and a half ago. So I think it's mostly the same investors kind of double dipping or getting back. But we certainly haven't lost the interest of those who have not allocated yet. That also speaks to the breadth of the market that we're going to see as this cycle matures, because let's face it, pretty much all investors these days, or at least professional investors, more or less understand Bitcoin and probably understand Ether as well. But some of the other tokens that you mentioned earlier, some of the other layer ones or the metaverse or the DeFi's, that takes a lot more education that they seem to have been working on, if I understand what you're saying. Absolutely. And I think there's another point too, which I think you'll appreciate, uh, uh, given your macro focus as well, is that the 60-40 portfolio has worked for basically 40 years up until 2022, right? As bonds went down, stocks went up and vice versa. So you had that natural diversification effect, that, that negative correlation, which happens in an environment from 1980 to 2020 when rates go straight down and, and stocks basically go straight up. What's happened over the last two years is that correlation has really broken down, right? In 2022, bonds sold off the entire year and stocks sold off the entire year. And in 2023, it's been sort of the opposite, right? Stocks have gone up and, and bonds, even though they started the year uh, poorly, have, have, have basically done well. So while this has been a great year for traditional 60-40 investors, the portfolio diversification that they thought they were getting is not working. And it's pretty timely that uh, you know BlackRock and Fidelity and others are putting these Bitcoin ETF applications out there. At the same time, they're also talking about what is the right new modern portfolio, right? What is the what will give you the greatest sharp ratio and the greatest diversification in your portfolio? Since it's not coming from your traditional bond and equity portfolio right now. So when you put those together, which is investors are smarter, they haven't stopped paying attention, and their traditional portfolios are being brought into question in terms of diversification, it's a pretty perfect storm heading into next year and beyond, just from an asset allocation standpoint, independent of you know where within digital assets you choose to invest. You're also sketching out something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, the change in the narratives. Bitcoin has typically been seen as a speculative asset, full stop, nothing else. But you're talking about it in terms of portfolio diversification which is a somewhat different way of looking at it. Yeah, and I think you know we'll all remember BlackRock's June application of the Bitcoin ETF because it was it came at a time when sentiment was pretty poor and and it, it sort of changed overnight, right? Like especially the traditional finance folks who were like basically ready to call crypto dead, and then all of a sudden here comes BlackRock, the largest asset manager in the world, saying, "Nope, in fact, it's not dead, and we're going to try to extract as much as we can from from this new industry." But what was lost was that two months before that application. BlackRock strategists actually put out a report saying the exact same thing, saying that Bitcoin should be part of the modern portfolio. And it didn't get a lot of attention because nobody knew two months later they were also going to file for a Bitcoin application, Bitcoin ETF application. But if you put them together, they were related, right? Which is the insiders at BlackRock and other financial institutions were recognizing that this actually does have a place in the portfolio. And the next step is, of course, oh, well, if that's the case, how do we profit from it, right? And if you look at Wall Street, what have they done so far, right? They've written research on the miners and on Coinbase and on you know, Robinhood and things like that, but they can't really profit from it. There's no investment banking. They aren't allowed to trade it. So this really is 
at least right now, the only way to get involved. And, and you know, I know we're going to be talking about some predictions going forward here, but to me, that's one of the most obvious predictions going forward is that the next wave is investment banking. You're going to see some of these, probably not the bulge bracket firms, but you're going to see some of the small tier two, tier three investment banks start to pitch token ideas to companies. You know, why can't you issue a token as part of your capital structure? Why can't you combine your airline miles or your loyalty rewards or something and, and issue a token? And I think you're going to see it. And I think that's a huge white space that has yet to be explored in, in terms of not only traditional finance, but also just corporations, municipalities, universities, those who easily could issue tokens in the near future. And that's when we see the innovation regarding the utility of tokens really start to take off, obviously, regulation permitting. But moving on to the, the predictions, well, outlook, I should say, not predictions, outlook. And Bitcoin, since you gave us a really nice segue there, what is your 2024 outlook for Bitcoin? So those who know me and have heard me speak or write, you know, over the last six years know that, um, you know, I've always liked Bitcoin. Uh, I like the idea of it. I think there's no doubt that it is going higher, but it's never been a big part of my investment thesis, nor has it ever been a big part of any of the ARCA portfolios, simply because I can't value it, right? There are other tokens that I can value. They either have cash flows or they have real, you know, a revenue of some sort or some value that I can ascribe to it. Whereas obviously Bitcoin is just a supply demand story and a relative value story compared to other currencies. This is the first year, though, that we're going into a year with an actual real view on Bitcoin, because it's, it's pretty undeniable the amount of inflows you're going to see over the next you know, two to three years from these ETFs, combined with the halving, combined with whether you believe in cycles or not. And truthfully, I don't believe in them that much. It just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point when you've seen these four-year cycles over and over again. People know it. They've seen the charts. They've seen the data. They know that this is shaping up to look a lot like what we saw in in you know 2000 uh, uh, you know 19 and, and and 20, and then you know before that 2014 and 15. So we think Bitcoin is for sure going higher next year. I can't give you a price target per se, but it is going higher. And also, I think that there is quite an opportunity with the miners as a result. I mean, this is a pretty overlooked part of Wall Street in terms of the coverage areas here. And in fact, most of the people who cover, most of the, the analysts who cover the miners are, are still incredibly low price targets and or um, not covering it at all. But, you know, you now have ordinals and BRC, a 20 craze that's kicking off right now, and it's massive for the miners. You have transaction fees growing for really the first time ever. So going from a business that would have revenues cut in half because of the having in five months to having almost all of that entirely offset by transaction fees. You know, if this keeps going, everyone's going to have to rewrite the miners. And, and I'm pretty sure BRC20 meme coins aren't really high on Wall Street analyst radar right now. So I think Bitcoin's going higher. I think miners are going higher. I think pretty much every business that benefits from Bitcoin's success is going higher next year. And speaking of the extra transaction fees that we're seeing on Bitcoin, I was checking earlier this morning and the, over the past seven days, the average transaction fee is now up over $25. This, of course, impacts Bitcoin's utility. It's not going to be used for payments, let's face it, if the transaction fees are so high. And obviously, they're layer twos, but they're not quite as uh, widely extended as they could be. And is also to do with the retail involvement in the market. There's less, there's more of a barrier for retail investors to get involved in Bitcoin and then self-custody if transaction fees are so high. Do you see the transaction fees surge that we're getting now as more of an opportunity the Bitcoin miners, you mentioned them already, or more of a barrier? Um, 
Well, again, I think it's an opportunity for the miners, certainly. I, I don't really think of it as much of a barrier for the usage of Bitcoin, just in the sense that, and this may anger some people, but Bitcoin really doesn't have a usage. Um, it is just a buy and hold asset. I mean, you look over the last year, and I think it's something cl- almost 80% of holders, they haven't touched their wallet in over a year. So, I mean, that just shows you, one, just the fervent belief in, in community that Bitcoin has, that even in the, you know, the depths of hell that we've seen over the last 18 months, that, that you know, four-fifths of the people who are involved in, in this asset just do not touch it and don't care about what's going on around you. Look, stable coins have proven to be the better uh, medium of exchange and probably will be for the foreseeable future. Bitcoin really is just an asset that you hold because it's going higher. And there's just, you know, again, we're seeing maybe that change with ordinals and BRC20s. Maybe there's going to be some more utility to it. But, you know, for the most part, I, I think the fact that Bitcoin does so little is why most people like it. And, and you know, I don't really see its utility or its usages changing a whole lot, at least in the short term. The freshness of simplicity, right? Well, this is in contrast to the narratives driving Ether, for instance, which is a technology first. We're seeing Bitcoin perhaps show glimmers of being a technology with evolving use cases, whereas Ether has always been that. What's your ETH thesis for 2024? Yeah, so... Ethereum, as you said, it's a technology. It's an app store. I mean, you know, for those who also speak to new investors or traditional investors, I mean, the analogy that has always worked well when I'm explaining Ethereum is essentially it's it's an app store, right? You know, if you were able to invest in the just the Apple App Store, you probably would have, right? Because as the community, as the apps inside the App Store grow, and as downloads increase and as transactions increase, it generates revenue to the App Store pretty clean cut business, right? I mean, that's what Ethereum is. And just like the Apple App Store, well, once you have success, then those apps will probably want to be in other app stores, right? That's how Android and Samsung, you know, competed with 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 Apple and, and iOS. And ultimately, the same thing's happening here, right? If, you know, when you start to see some success in Ethereum, then you're going to have other competitors, whether it's Solana or Avalanche or, you know, Binance Smart Chain. So I think, A, that's starting to really resonate with people understanding more what Ethereum really is. But also, a lot of investors don't want to get in the weeds. They don't really want to be, you know, quote unquote, token pickers or stock pickers, right? You know, you look at how well passive investing has done versus active investing in the traditional markets. I mean, this year, again, another year where the S&P, you know, has crushed hedge fund returns. Most investors who are at least dipping their toes in want to just say, am I long blockchain or not? Right. And you and there hasn't really been a great way to be long blockchain because Bitcoin, you know, even though it was first, it's very different than a lot of the other areas of what's being built with blockchain technology right now. Some of the ETFs that came out years ago that were supposed to be diversified ETFs about, you know, things that touch blockchain really didn't, right? It was like JP Morgan and, you know, other large behemoths where blockchain was just a sliver of what they did. Ethereum really is probably the best just generic representation of blockchain. It touches everything. It touches NFTs. It touches DeFi. You even have wrapped Bitcoin on, on Ethereum. Uh, obviously, you know, it's, it's first or second in terms of stablecoin uh, usage, DeFi. So I think that is probably one of the best bull cases for Ethereum from an investing standpoint is just that investors understand it now. And it's the most generic representation of Am I long or blockchain? So, you know, look, is it going to compete in every part of the blockchain world? Probably not. I mean, you already saw it in 2020 and 21 that when block space started to get filled, 
Ethereum fees were so high that it was basically unusable. And that's what kind of launched the Solunavax revolution, right? Where Solana, Luna, Avalanche, even some other ones like Phantom, Binance Smart Chain, et cetera, started to take over with lower fees. Um, and you're seeing the same thing now, right? With 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 layer twos and and obviously Solana's success. So I, I don't think it'll necessarily be the most or even only used layer one blockchain, but it clearly has an advantage from a security standpoint, which is going to matter as you start to see more institutional and large transactions, right? It's never going to be the chain you use to to go get a cup of coffee per se, but you could see incredibly large financial settlement happening on Ethereum. And between the upgrades uh, last year with the IP1559 and what's coming in next year with the Dencon merge, there's just a lot of supply demand factors in your favor combined with the fact that it's you know still the most trusted, well-known layer one blockchain. Are the investors you talk to concerned at all about regulatory risk regarding Ethereum? Um, I haven't heard it specific to Ethereum. I mean, re- regulation risk has been prevalent with the investors we speak to really since we started in 2018. And it's it's been probably a crutch and an excuse more than it has been a concern, if that makes sense. Meaning that if you aren't ready to allocate or if you're have hesitation, hesitating at all, it's just been a good thing to fall back on. Well, I can't do it because of regulation or I don't know what's happening with regulation. I think there's been a lot of headway this year that investors are noticing. Um, you know, Things like the SEC losing a couple of court cases, specifically with Grayscale and Ripple, combined with even little things like what just came out last week with FASB, you know, the Financial Accounting Standard Board, saying that you know you're allowed to mark to market your crypto on on corporate balance sheet, combined with you know a few people in Congress that are standing out a little bit in terms of pro blockchain and, and pro crypto, and then even you know again, you, you can't understate how much of an impact what BlackRock did with their application meant in terms of this just not going away and obviously not being, you know, anti-government in the US if you have someone like BlackRock and even like a JP Morgan getting involved in crypto. So the regulation is always top of mind. I, I have not heard it specific to Ethereum. I think it's more broad based. With the institutional protection, what about DeFi? The outlook for ETH is related to the outlook for DeFi. So what do you think lies ahead for that segment? You know, again, DeFi... To me, DeFi and Tether are, are related in that they just work. It's it may not be an investable area. Like, you know, if you wanted to invest in the growth of stable coins, for example, it's hard to do. You know, Tether's success, USDC success, BUSD, you know, prior to, to, to basically being shut down. It's always hard to just be a pure play way to I want to invest in the growth of stable coins. I think DeFi is somewhere similar right now, which is like it just works. Um, lending and borrowing works, trading on exchanges works. And it's just hard to invest in it, though, because there's copycats on every chain. A lot of the tokens just don't necessarily capture economic value for a lot of reasons because of regulation, right? Most of the protocols in DeFi that have a token are just terrified of turning on a fee switch where you can actually give back those revenues and fees that they earn to token holders. And I think that's completely unfounded and not at all a regulation thing. I think it's more of a choice. But as a result, it's the same thing where as a user of DeFi, it's hard to argue with the success that some of these protocols have had and the ability to use them and you know, certainly get liquidity and sometimes even cheaper fees. But from an investing standpoint, there's just so many across so many chains that it, it's, it's difficult for it to be a huge part of an investment thesis, um, in my opinion, in 2024 and beyond, other than 
you know, finding either a new niche within DeFi that hasn't fully been explored or finding the project where they're not afraid to actually reward the token holders. CME Group Cryptocurrency Futures and Options provide market-leading liquidity for Bitcoin and Ether trading. Participate in the Crypto Classic Trading Challenge from December 10th through December 15th for the chance to win cash prizes. Compete against your peers while test driving your crypto strategies in a risk-free simulated environment. Visit cmegroup.com slash cryptoclassic to find out more. This communication is not directed to investors of any specific jurisdiction or to recipients based in jurisdictions in which distribution is not permitted. It cannot be considered investment advice or results of market experience. Past results are not indicative of future performance. Trading derivatives products involves the risk of loss. Please consider it carefully. Full disclaimer included in show notes. What's your time frame for a regulatory framework in the U.S. around DeFi? One year, five years, never? <laughs> it sounds like you should have our uh, chief compliance officer on the fo- <laughs> on the podcast next time to talk about that. Um, you know, as an investor, I really don't worry about it. You know, I've been doing this for almost twenty five years now across equities and, and fixed income and, and and now crypto. And look, there are some companies and, and firms that they make all of their money based on having an inside track on on Washington policy and regulation. And for everyone else. You really have no edge and you're just waiting and, and reacting to what comes out. I've been playing this game now for, you know, in, in crypto specifically for six years and, and the wait and see model has worked fine because nothing's really happened. Um, there just hasn't been that much that's actually happened. There's been a lot of hype and a lot of fear and a lot of news, but in terms of actual regulation, there's been virtually nothing. And I think, you know, unfortunately, at least here in the US, until something changes with Congress, you're just not going to see any material changes being pushed through anytime soon. So certainly frustrating, you know, from a crypto ecosystem standpoint, but not part of a real investment thesis until we actually see something concrete. And the paralysis is at the moment largely relegated to the United States. I mean, where I'm talking to you from in Europe, it's a slightly different framework. And we are seeing legacy banks start to dip their toes into DeFi waters, which is which is fascinating. Onto the um, yeah. crypto metaverse, blockchain gaming, NFT segments, what kind of interest are you seeing there? And what's that, what's your outlook for those segments for 2024? Sure. Yeah, gaming has definitely been one of the themes that we've been investing heavily out of. Um, you know, we have multiple funds at Arca with, with slightly different strategies and mandates, but gaming has been one that, that has been pretty universally invested in all of our fund vehicles because I'll go back to, to again, 2020, 2021. We really had a rise of DeFi, NFTs, and stablecoins, right? Those were the three that you can point back to and say, these were the three sectors that not only emerged during that time, but also have had real staying power. A lot of other sectors and themes and narratives were maybe slowly starting, but just hadn't kind of gotten that traction. And where we were always saying, well, in the future, they're going to be there. I think gaming is the one that's now there. You know, it's been heavily invested from a venture capital standpoint for the last three, four years. A lot of 90 second to two minute videos talking about games that are going to be released, but nothing ever was released. And now we're there. Um, You've got multiple chains that are really proving both from a business development standpoint and from a technology standpoint that are ready to handle the type of workload that, that gaming requires. 
you know, things like chains like Avalanche and IMX and Ronin, you know, Ronin actually being a really interesting one because it's the side chain that was built by the guys who built Axie Infinity. So they already have an embedded user base because of the success, you know, that Axie Infinity had, you know, even though it was fairly short term success, the success built a customer base that's already embedded with Ronin. And again, Avalanche and IMX have really spent on the business development side, lining up partnerships with real gaming studios. And what we're seeing now is that you're starting to see games being launched. The first quarter and the second quarter are going to be huge in terms of new games launched. When you start to put real traction and real substance behind what has been a you know, show me story for three years, I think you're going to see gaming continue to outperform like it has in the fourth quarter this year, I think throughout next year and probably in 2025 as well. And you know, this, this uh, ecosystem where the contributors to the games, the early users, the players actually can benefit financially from the game's success is something that we haven't really seen before. And if these launches go the way we think they're going to go in the first quarter, it should be an incredibly good year. One of the things that most fascinated me about the Axie phenomenon was the spontaneous emergence of entirely new types of marketplaces. And should we start to see that going forward in the various gaming ecosystems and metaverses that you're talking about, that is going to change our whole understanding of not just uh, marketplaces, but also trading and as I'm not even touching on the ownership question, certainly a fascinating segment, which, uh, as you hinted on earlier on, is probably where you're getting a lot of the really complicated questions from the smart investors that are doing some out of the box thinking on this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, again, it's a, it's a sector that's easy to understand, um, you know, whether, whether investors are gamers themselves or they have children who are gamers. But this idea of, you know, actually being able to build value within a game and keep that value with you when you get the new version of a game or when you port it over to another game, you know, that's something that is easily understandable to just about anyone. Um, and the other sector, too, I think that's that's actually ironically uh, easy to understand is AI, um, not in the sense that anybody truly understands all the nuances of what's happening with artificial intelligence, but the idea of why AI and crypto are sort of have a natural intersection is pretty powerful. And what I mean by that is, you know, anybody who's, you know, spent any time basically in the business world from from 2000 to 2023 knows that any good data set, it's, it's garbage in, garbage out. Right. If you put bad data in, you're going to get bad data outputs. So everything is dependent on the inputs. And what people are starting to realize with with AI is that AI can be the most powerful agent in the world, but if it's being trained incorrectly, the outputs are going to be bad. Um, there was the famous case. I forget if it was Microsoft or Google, but but one of them introduced a Twitter bot that was basically an AI uh, account. And within just hours of learning and hearing, it became it was putting out incredibly racist and offensive information just by how it was being trained by the people who happened to gravitate to Twitter. So when you think about why decentralization and, and crypto matters for AI, is effectively it's just going to end up having better training models, right? These AI models are going to be trained by all over the world inputs rather than just one input driving uh, these models. So for instance, BitTensor. Um, with the ticker Tau, T-A-O, is one of the ones that we've been heavily investing in um, throughout this year because we just think it's a better AI model. And it's one that, again, surprisingly, is very easy for most investors to understand, which is if we can train the models better, if we can come up with an incentive system, which is really what crypto is great at, if we can come up with a better incentive system for the success of training, it's going to lead to better outputs on these AI models. 
as well as push forward the whole narrative around data storage, which in my opinion is one of the overlooked aspects of blockchain utility. But, but Jeff, to start wrapping up here, I want to touch on narratives. And I know that we've been doing that throughout this conversation, but let's package it nicely for our listeners. What narratives do you think the market is currently overvaluing? And then I'll ask you about which ones you think are underappreciated. Sure. So from purely from an investing standpoint, I think the market is overvaluing all layer one and layer two blockchains. And, and the reason for that is simply, again, go back to 2020-21. Like, why did we have this huge run in prices? It's because there was more demand for block space than there was block space, right? Ethereum basically was clogged. And there, as a result, you needed new solutions to create that block space. You had way more demand because of the growth of DeFi and stables and eventually NFTs than you did uh, the block space to support that. We look now and it's the exact opposite. You have almost infinite block space because there's so many layer ones and layer two solutions. And they're just, we haven't really seen that demand yet come in to use it. So I, I think as a result, you know, there, there will be winners and losers, but collectively, the, from a valuation standpoint, it is way too much being poured into these, these, these you know, effectively app stores relative to the amount of apps that are in there. So I think you're going to have a huge, basically it's do or die season for consumer apps. You know, eventually, you're going to have to have these killer apps beyond stable coins that fill that block space. And ultimately, I think from an investment standpoint, the apps themselves are undervalued relative to the app stores, which are overvalued. That's a nice, tidy answer. I love that. That's perfect. Thanks. And you know, I'm sure our listeners would love you to give price targets for Bitcoin and ETH, but I'm not going to ask you to do that because I fully understand the pitfalls there. Instead, I'm going to ask you to close this out, Jeff, with a more personal take. What questions are most consuming Arca's time these days? It's actually uh, what's being built on Bitcoin, Bitcoin ordinals and BRC20. It, it, we have a team at Arca who I think are you know the best and brightest in the business. I mean, I am I am the old guy who manages the risk and asks the questions, and I've got a team of hardworking you know young men and women who are really testing this stuff every day and, and trying to figure it out. And and truthfully, that's been really hard to understand. It, it is we're getting a lot of questions on it. Again, like, is Bitcoin going to be more than historically what it has been? Are you going to actually see, you know, Bitcoin uh, uh, DeFi one day? Are you going to actually see real NFTs that people care about? And it's been, it's been challenging from a technology standpoint. It's been hard to learn from an investing standpoint. It's been a little all over the place. So, I, I, you know, that's definitely something that my team is spending a lot of time trying to learn and, and get smarter at. The other is just testing all of these different ecosystems. Everybody on our team knows Ethereum at this point. It's, it's hit or miss with regard to whether or not somebody really understands the Avalanche ecosystem versus Cosmos versus Solana versus you know, now what we're seeing on Celestia and, and, and Binance Smart Chain. So it, it, it's not necessarily that we're getting a lot of questions there from externally, but internally, it's a lot more demand on our time to get smarter on these different ecosystems. I mean, it is, it's to the point where we can't cover the whole space anymore. And we used to easily cover the whole space. That's one of the luxuries I find actually of working in this industry. You never know everything. And that is both humbling as well as motivating, as well as the exciting part of all of us in this, working in this industry, watching transformative technologies emerge in front of our eyes and get tested in real time and evolve both on the social and the regulatory and the technological aspects. Jeff, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I could carry on for hours, but 
I know that you have things to brush off and do, and I want to thank you very much for your time today. Where can people find out more about you and what ARCA does? Sure, and first and foremost, thank you uh, to the Coindesk team and to all the listeners. Happy holidays. You can find more about ARCA on our website uh, at ar.ca. Um, we have a full education suite on there as well as you know weekly and monthly blogs that you can check out. So anyone who's looking to learn, I would definitely uh, recommend our website. And then myself, you can find me on Twitter at jdorman81. Jeff, thank you so much and happy holidays. To you as well. Thank you. For more crypto podcasts, check out the Coindesk Podcast Network. You can reach us at podcasts at coindesk.com, follow us, and if you like the show, please leave us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Markets Daily is produced and edited by Eleanor Paul, with executive production by Jared Schwartz. I'm Noel Acheson for Coindesk. We're back tomorrow with more market news and insights. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.